This is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Happy New Year, Tim. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Have you got any resolutions? I never make any resolutions because mm. either one of two things. Either I think I'm pretty much perfect as it is or I have a growth mindset in which I aim to continually improve uh, by small (laughs) increments. Perfectly splendid. (laughs) Yeah, I'll leave you to decide which one you think it is. (laughs) I just think you've no willpower, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, What did you you do for New Year? Uh, I washed my hands for 20 seconds at a time, singing happy birthday and washed away 2020 glad to see the back of it <laughs> you, you sang happy birthday for new year because <laughs> they're not yeah. is there not a 20 second version of old lang syne we could <laughs> <laughs> just didn't feel right this year to be honest <laughs> yeah i mean i i decided that um perhaps we displeased the elder gods and we needed to see out 2020 with a few sacrifices mm. so yeah i mean obviously I don't, I don't kill animals, so I just decided to sacrifice my slightly overgrown coriander, um, and I um, cut up violently um, an onion, and I massacred an aubergine. Uh, I mean, I made a curry, is what I'm saying. I made a curry. Okay. I sacrificed my liver. <laughs> so. <laughs> Didn't we all? <laughs> it's tough, yeah. be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, um, it's New Year. What are, we, what are we thinking and drinking and stuff? That, the premise. Off the back of my liver sacrifice, I'm thinking about just drinking water, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Cleanse time. A cleanse, yeah. So water, I want to chat about water. Yeah. I mean, we we never said that this drinking podcast was purely alcohol-based. So I think it's a wise decision to, you know, dip our toes into water. Jacuzzi bibby as it were. What are you drinking then? To uh, Are you drinking a glass of water? Uh, no, I'm drinking some booze. <laughs> I've got a Krabby's. <laughs> a Krabby's. <laughs> like, no, no relation whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's got a water base. Yeah, <laughs> it's, when you read the ingredients, it's primarily water. Mm-hmm. So This is true. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm drinking water. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm drinking clean water lager, it's called, ah. <laughs> from Brugger. I mean, like you, I'm not going to do this podcast of drinking a glass of water. That would be ridiculous. Exactly. So uh, what I did is I thought there must be a beverage with water in the name or something like that that I could tie in. And I discovered Brugger. And Brugger um, donates 100% of their profits from their boozy sales to clean water projects so that's Uh why it's called clean water lager because they go and fund kind of all these um all these good projects to make sure people have drinkable water um there's not i there's i feel like we don't want to go too far down this route uh with our water-based conversation about Mm -hmm. climate and environmental impacts and all that sort of stuff because that would be a very different podcast i don't feel like we are the ones to explore that. So I wanted to kind of get that elephant out of the room straight yeah. off. How about and you? Not, yeah, I mean, some of you may or may not know that I do work in the water industry. Uh, and I do spend the majority of my time talking about the environment and sustainability and packaging. So it'd be quite nice to just talk about what's in water rather than what's packaging got to do with it. <laughs> As Tina Turner famously sang. <laughs> yeah no I agree I, was, I tried to explore mostly explore water as a beverage in the same way we would if we were talking about anything else and like mm-hmm. you know look at the history and some of the companies behind it 
but actually I mean it was quite hard to get to that information because you are bombarded with like information about sanitation and and stuff straight away so I mm -hmm. imagine if people want to learn more about that it wouldn't be very hard we're going to try and bring you some of the trivia you might not know yes 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 cool well with your expertise do you want to kick us off yes I'm gonna go straight in with numbers uh how much the industry is worth so the Ooh. bottled water industry that is have you got any ideas I mean, oh, that's very much finger in the air question. Yeah, um, <laughs> I know. Yeah, but that's just reminding me how I made you commit to how many permutations of a dartboard there were. So I feel like I need to answer it. Um, I mean, I imagine it's like the biggest beverage industry. So I'm going to say a billion US dollars. Okay. Is that crazy? So in the UK, uh, as of 2019, uh, it was 1.6 billion. Um, which is down quite a lot. The bottled water industry has taken a quite a massive hit in recent years. That's down 76 million. I mean. Um, but globally, they project that uh, the global industry worth will be around $320 billion by 2022, which is enormous. <laughs> Uh, I think it's mind-boggling to us because obviously we live in the UK where bottled water generally isn't a thing that we, it's still seen as like a luxury. A mm -hmm. lot of countries obviously tap water is not safe to drink. Um, so they tend to buy a lot more bottled water. <clears throat> and just generally as a society here in the UK, we're not big water drinkers. Um, I so mean, we couldn't manage it for this podcast. We're, we're doing a <laughs> podcast about water, and we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. Well, that, like, there's, there's loads of like figures you can get with regards to you know who drinks the most water per capita, etc. Um, mm -hmm. So, any ideas, guesses, who drinks the most? Um, I know a little demographic thing about mm -hmm. water drinkers. I don't know. This probably isn't what you're going to get at because it's not a specific country. But I do know that demographically speaking, Latina women or Latinx women are mm -hmm. the biggest buyers of bottled water mm -hmm. in the US because of it being based on this sort of historic mistrust because they used to live in areas that weren't served well by tap water. So even now they do have access to it, they still buy it. So I know yeah. that, but I don't know yeah. if that ties to your data. It does actually. Uh, yeah. It's joint, joint winners, Mexico and Thailand. Uh, on average, it works out as 72.4 gallons of water per person every year. It's a lot of water. It's a that lot. Is a lot. Um, I guess Thailand's up there because people aren't drinking the tap water there. Mm -hmm. um, so Italy, interestingly, so Mexico and Thailand were joint first, and then it was followed by Italy, um, which is a big jump down to 50 gallons per person. Um in kind of Europe, again, they do tend to prefer bottled water a lot more in other European countries. Again, UK, not massively that much. And as I said, we're not massive water drinkers. So in Italy, around 91, ugh, can't speak, around 91% of the population there uh, get their one litre of water drunk every day, um, compared to 48% here in the UK. We're just not big water drinkers. Probably when you say one, one litre, is that supposed to be the recommended amount? That's very much a contested kind of figure. Um, it differs for different people and obviously healthcare requirements. If mm. you've got underlying health conditions, you need to drink more, you need to drink not less. But um, it's one of those things where you can't really get a committed figure <laughs> Because um, obviously for marketing reasons, we always want to try and say, you know, oh, you should be drinking this much water today. You can't really commit to an amount, but, mm -hmm. you know, you can't do much harm. You can't do much harm by drinking a litre a day. I think it's something around like 1.6 litres a day I've, I've seen is like a, a good mm -hmm. average. So at least a litre a day. And like a lot of people struggle with that. I'll confess, I'm not a huge water drinker. I was just about to say, when we're together, I feel like I'm always getting glasses of water and you never do. I know, I'm terrible. You're like a husk of a woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I'm terrible. My my husband drinks a lot. He gets like these big two liter bottles and just fills them up throughout the day and drinks yeah. them. I'm lucky if I have like two cups of tea. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm terrible. Uh, that's why you're ideal for this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the girl that works in water that doesn't drink water. <laughs> hmm. So are you a tap or a bottle water drinker? Oh, tap. 100%. Tap. Any particular reason or just it's, for it? Oh, I mean, it's easier, it's cheaper, it's for more environmentally friendly. <laughs> Don't let me go down that route. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I mean, I say primarily because it's easier. If I was sitting on my sofa and I was really thirsty and... Mm someone presented a bottle of water to me on a silver platter and it was cool and glistening and the choice was do I grab it off the silver platter or do I get off my butt and go and fill my glass from the tap hmm. probably take the first <laughs> yeah that's the thing like it's it's a personal preference a lot of the time some people prefer a bottle of a tap for the taste um some people are you know a bit wary of the chemical treatment of tap water etc etc there's lots of different reasons why people choose them um i am going to go into the whole taste profile of water later on um, mm -hmm. some people say it all tastes the same other people don't agree um but i just thought i'd talk about the difference between like mineral water spring water tap water um and so mineral water and spring water, pretty much the same thing. Um, they both come from an underground source, a named underground source. And it's um, it has to be protected. It's guaranteed protected from any kind of pollution. And in, in order to be kind of labelled a mineral water, it has to be protected and recognised through an, a local authority. And that authority is a two-year process. It will be constantly analysed and checked and tested by this authority for two years just to make sure that it has a consistent mineral composition. If it doesn't have that, it can't be classed as a mineral water. So right. it's quite a long process to get yourself registered as a, a mineral water producer. Um, once that's done, um, you're not allowed to treat the water in any way shape or form it has to be guaranteed pure and therefore it has to be bottled at the source as well so a lot of strict strict regulations with it it's got to come under um like food trading standards uh drinking water regulations like it's really stringent mm -hmm. uh, that's for mineral water uh whereas spring water it's the same kind of composition it comes from a named underground source um it's protected from pollution um but they don't have to go through a formal recognition process through that authority. Um, so they can just start bottling it straight away as spring water. It may undergo um, permitted treatments. Um, those treatments still have to fall under the drinking regulations. Um, so a lot of the time, these spring waters will add certain like minerals or vitamins. So you see like these vitamin rich waters, vitamin mm -hmm. D water, vitamin, yeah. So that's what they are essentially. They're spring waters with added benefits. Um, a lot of the time mineral waters start their life as a spring water. Cause obviously if you find a really nice natural source and you start producing, you've got to wait two years before you can be registered mineral water. So. Right. Does this mean that in general, mineral waters are more expensive because they have to go through a process like are they the ones you would generally find in restaurants um again it's not so much to do with the process it can so the thing about the mineral and spring waters it's a very very limited process so it's you know you abstract it from the source you're allowed to filter it which is kind of filtering out any excess particles and things like that that you don't want from the ground and then it's straight in the bottle. So it's literally out to the ground through a filter in a bottle done. Mm -hmm. um, with regards to the cost, it depends, you know, where the source is, how hard it is to abstract, how long it takes. Because these mineral waters, the reason they have different flavor profiles is because the way in which they are naturally filtered, it might be through rock or sandstone or all sorts like volcanic rock things like that mm -hmm. so it depends how sought after it is how hard how hard it is to get there and source it 
how much water there is flowing. If you haven't got an abundance of it and you can't ab- abstract a load of it, then you're not going to have as much of it. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the cost difference. And then when you come to spring water, again, I'll mention this later, but depending how fancy and arty farty you want to go with what you add to it, you know, you can really take the piss a bit <laughs> and say, oh, you know, we've done this to our wonderful spring water and it's going to give you the use, the, a, a look that's going to make you 10 years younger because we've added X, Y, Z into it and it's youth yeah. water and it's £500 a bottle. <laughs> I mean, that's why I think it's worth talking about in podcast, because in, in many ways, like it's not that different to the other beverages we talk about in terms mm. of kind of, um, you know, really hyping up the flavor profiles like you would with wine and terroir. But then also, you know, proclaimed medical benefits, like I think we found in a lot of um, 19th century aperitifs and liqueurs and stuff, they start as treatments and then they mm-hmm. end up as these sort of medicinal tinctures that everyone likes drinking. Yeah. So, yeah, that's essentially mineral and spring water. And then with tap water, so that can come from a wide range of sources. doesn't have to be underground, can be lakes, rivers, reservoirs, variety of places. Um, And then they have to go through a really stringent process of kind of disinfecting and sanitization in order to get it to your tap and to be safe. Um, So the process is a bit longer, obviously. They abstract the water. The water would then be stored in a reservoir. Uh, then it would be filtered, similarly to mineral and spring water, just to remove particles. Uh, then it will go through a really rigorous uh, chemical treatment. Um, then it's aerated, which a lot of people don't know. So in order to remove any odors or nitrates, it has to be aerated. Mm-hmm. Um, then it goes into the stage of disinfect, um, disinfection. Uh, which is the point where chlorine is added. So tap water has to be treated with chlorine because um, obviously, especially in the UK, the, treat, um, the infrastructure and the pipes are very, very, very old. So in order to ensure that that water is 100% safe once it gets to your tap, it has to be treated with chlorine in order to, to do that. And that's what puts some people off is like the chlorine in the water. Other mm-hmm. people are a bit... Um, dubious you hear you know stories of there being contraception and fluoride and stuff in the water um which is obviously things you can't filter out using a filter so it's again personal preference but what i will say is that the processes and regulations in the uk are probably the most stringent in the world so Mm. the uk tap water we're very lucky to have good tap water yeah I think my um, my pipes are fairly uh, youthful, um, as far <laughs> as I can tell. How are your pipes doing these days? I've got lovely pipes, very yeah. fresh, pure Welsh pipes. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we managed to get any smut into an episode about water, but there we go. <laughs> shall, I, um, shall I tell you about what historical digging I've been doing? Yes, please. So I thought I couldn't compete with you in terms of um (laughs) you know talking about any of the kind of what water is today so as usual I look into the history books um the obviously um in terms of kind of you know plumbing and um accessing safe clean water from wells and stuff that goes really quite far back I mean the Minoan civilization certainly the Romans had it and they brought stuff over here but talking about bottled water which is, you know, I think what we're going to stick to. The first example I can find of that, and it's ironic that we don't really drink that much of it, because it was here in this country, um, in the Malverns, in the Malvern Hills, Malvern Wells, in fact. Um, We know that there's been a well for a very long time there, but the first record of it actually being bottled and sold is in 1622. Mm-hmm. And that was among the local grocers, really, who kind of bottle it at the at the source in Malvern Wells um, and sell it kind of throughout that period of time. It does become commercialised uh, a bit later by Schweppes, mm-hmm. who opened a bottling plant there in 1850. 
uh, and they were like the official caterers to the great exhibition of 1851 so it was a really big sudden surge of everyone being aware that this was a thing that could happen it was there and people wanted to buy it they introduced it as Malvern soda and they called it Malvern Malvern seltzer water a few years later as well um, it stayed with them for quite a long time until um, the well itself was then kind of leased to some independent people um, and they, um, they bottled there until the 1960s. But the nearby uh, factory operated until 2010. Mm -hmm. Schweppes was, as you probably know, uh, <laughs> was bought by Coca-Cola in this country yeah. and also in New Zealand, I think, although Schweppes in the US is actually Dr. Pepper. Mm -hmm. um, and they closed it down in, in 20, uh, 2010. The locals were not at all happy about that. Um, but actually, it is now owned and operated by locals again, um, thanks to a lottery heritage grant. So they can now produce 1,200 bottles per day. Um, and it's this independent family owned company now. So, you know, still going in another form. Um, <laughs> the Holy Well, actually, you know, people came from miles around to worship at it. They thought it had healing properties. You find a lot of the stuff in, in Bottles Water is very tied to this resurgence of spa well-being um, and all the spa treatments that, you know, obviously were popularized by the Romans and then they start resurging with, with a vengeance in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. But well worship is definitely, you know, goes very far back to uh, other kind of Druidic practices. But the Holy yeah. Well was mostly Christian, although you know, lots of other people would come and lay down votive offerings as well. They do a thing called dressing wells. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever heard of that or seen it. No, no. It's, it's basically a practice where one day a year they um, purposely create like an arch above it with clay and um, salt water. And then they decorate, highly decorate it with flowers um, and things like that. And it's really just sort of to pay honor to the well. And it mostly arises, you know, out of situations where the well continues to provide safe drinking water for local people through difficult times. So you see a lot of evidence of these coming after the Black Plague. Um, mm. And all of a sudden the people are sort of saying, oh, the well has saved us because it's it's still just all the spring, you know, is pure as opposed to in the cities where bad stuff lay. Um, nice. The Holy Well in particular, they dress it on St. Oswald's Day. St. Oswald is the saint associated with that area. And that's the last day of February, whichever that may be, whether it's the 28th or 29th. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the Holy Well. Mm. Um, Schweppes, I thought it'd be interesting to look into them. So they come in the late 18th century and Johann Schwepp was from, well, what was then the, the Republic of Geneva, but Switzerland now. And most of their, their products and their work were based off the work of Joseph Priestley, who is a British guy, and I will, I will get to in a minute. And um, so they sold their carbonated water, but he moved in 1792 to London to develop the business there. So it's sort of, it's sort of Swiss, it's sort of London-based. London um, and yeah, as I say, it was sort of around the 1840s, 1850s, they were commercializing Malvern water. Uh, so Joseph Priestley, I don't know if you're aware of him, who sort of did yeah. all the work essentially behind Schweppes. He's a really interesting guy and I could go off on too far of a tangent, so I'll try not to, but essentially he was an English chemist. He was the guy who, um, basically found that you could put carbon dioxide into water and make it sparkling. And that was the fundamental process behind Schweppes's, you know, sparkling soda water. He did that about two or three years before he discovered oxygen mm -hmm. um, and, you know, made the case for that. So he worked heavily on gases. Uh, he did he did go a bit wrong with one of his supposed um, gas discoveries, uh, which was where he... Have you heard of phlogiston? No. This is <laughs> phlogiston. It's a great word. This is a failed um, theory of his, which was that... It was, the, it was the substance or it was the matter that was fire. So rather than perceiving it as oxygen combusting with a fuel and an ignition, mm -hmm. 
uh, <laughs> we remember GCSE chemistry, he thought phlogiston was like a little particle or something that was trapped within matter. And when it heated up, it would emerge. And what you saw as fire was, was, a, was a matter, was a substance, he called it phlogiston, but obviously he was wrong. Um, <laughs> kind of unfair to focus on, you know, one of the main things he got wrong rather than all the stuff he did that was right. Uh, one more thing I'll tell you about him before I go off into much of a tangent is that he was um, a great exponent of like enlightenment rationalism and, um, you know, he, he espoused religious tolerance, you know, helping being, bring in Unitarianism. Uh, and he was a real kind of forward thinker, you know, for his time. Unfortunately for him, he was living in Birmingham. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> home of enlightenment thinking, to be fair, not slagging off Birmingham, really. He lived um, in what is now the Balti Triangle, people from around the area will know. But he was so, um, he was so enthusiastic about religious tolerance that he was seen as a religious dissenter. So the local people in Birmingham burned down his house and chased him away and he had to run away to London. And I know just how he feels. <laughs> <laughs> All of that was just to get that, that joke in. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's Schweppes and Joseph Priestley. Um, there's another big water company that I thought I should look at, which is Perrier. Mm -hmm. which is probably still for me the first one that comes to mind when I think about it really but, yes but that's for a specific reason in that it's used to be associated with the Edinburgh Comedy Awards uh, of course. and I still have such a strong link to it so I'll talk about it in a minute but uh yeah Perrier um is drawn from a place that was originally known as Les Bouillons and it was again like used as a spa since Roman times and it was the local doctor, Louis Perrier, who bought that spring in 1898. And he was operating it as a commercial spa. And then he also bottled the water for sale. That was kind of a side business. And then he sold it to a British person. Again, lots of British history in, in bottled water. Uh, St. John Harmsworth. <laughs> Couldn't sound more British, could he? Uh, he came to France to learn the language, apparently, and then Dr. Perrier showed him the spring and he was just like, I'm going to buy that. <laughs> so he, he sold his share of family newspapers because he was part of a big um, newspaper magnate family. Um, and then Harmsworth closed the spa. Spas were going out of fashion anyway by that point, by sort of the turn of the century. And Harmsworth actually renamed the spring Sauce Perrier. Which is weird, right? Because that's the guy he bought it off. It's not his name. Yeah. Um, but he started bottling it under Sauce Perrier. And, the, you know, they've got quite distinctive shape, um, the Perrier bottles. They're kind, yes. of, they're kind of called like teardrops, but they're, they're modelled after the Indian clubs that Harmsworth was, used to use for exercise. Which is mm, good a, weird, fact. a weird link. Um, and they very much advertised it as a chic, aspirational brand. It was advertised as the champagne of mineral water, which I think, mm. you know, if it's coming from France and it's being sold mostly to British audiences, they're very gullible. They will pay through the nose for something that claims it has, you know, more French heritage than it really does. It's not, by the way, at all related to Laurent Perrier or Perrier Jouet, um, the mm -hmm. actual champagne houses, which I think some mm -hmm. people probably do think it would be because it seems to make sense. Um, yeah, 95% of those sales were in Britain and the US. So they really kind of made it entirely out of this brand um, that they built up. Wow. So Perrier was bought by Nestle in 1992. Mm -hmm. um, and in before it was before that actually that Perrier had started to sponsor the Edinburgh Awards, the Comedy Awards. So the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, it's been through many name changes recently. We just call it the, the Edinburgh Comedy Awards now because it went through about five different sponsors in the past 15 years. Um, but there were awards for performances up at Edinburgh Fringe prior to 1981, but they all went to plays, um, plays and things like that, Fringe Firsts. And what the Perrier Prize was doing was to try and support comedy, which was emerging as a distinct art form. So none of the awards had gone to like sketch shows or reviews as they would call them and stand up wasn't, you know, kind of so much of a thing. 
So that's what it was intended to introduce. Do you know who the first winners were in 1981? No, I'm, it's before my time. I'm not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was it was a thousand pounds, and it went to Cambridge Footlights, who mm. that year included um, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson and Tony Slattery. Ah, oh, I saw a documentary on that. Not long yeah. ago, actually. And it was presented to them by Rowan Atkinson, who had been up in his Oxford review um, about five years before. So the the Oxbridge Footlights people, I mean, they were always doing really well in terms of getting careers off the back of their Edinburgh comedy show and going straight into TV because they were hugely privileged and they had a big <laughs> network, you know. So I'm not sure they were necessarily... Um, I don't mean they were undeserving, but they didn't necessarily need the extra attention <laughs> that comes yeah. with an award. Um, and some would say that they're still not quite as uh, diverse as they should be. But yeah, so they, they went from 81, the first stand-up, I think, got it in 87. So it took mm -hmm. a little while for a stand-up together. And then um, they had it until 2005. So when I was going up to the Edinburgh Comedy Festival, it was still called the Perrier's. When I, and it had been for a long time, so everyone called it the Perrier's. It wasn't the Edinburgh Comedy Award. Yeah. But I do remember that they uh, went through, you know, that really, I was going to say tough period. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not crying for them. But there was, you know, Nestle had the whole um, baby milk um, yeah. campaign issue mm -hmm. in that they were mispromoting and, you know, seeding false information particularly into Africa and there was a big backlash against that uh, lots of protests and so the for a number of years in the comedy awards you know people would accept their prizes but use that opportunity to slag off Perrier um, and yeah. a lot of protests about their sponsorship of the festival so I remember that from going up there and it, it actually um, inspired a spin-off awards ceremony called the Tapwater Awards yeah. which ran from, I think it was like 2001 <laughs> um, for about five or six years, I think, at, at which point, you know, they'd, they'd departed and also, you know, claimed to have changed their practices. I mean, Nestle is still kind of falling victim to that. They, they are still buying up a lot of water brands. Um, they tend to just go into regional areas, see which kind of regional local water brand is the most common there and trying to snap them up and you notice that when they do that now they go in they buy the water brand and then all the passionate kind of people from that area go well I'm not supporting this brand anymore because it's not a local brand it's a small mm. Nestle so it has like the opposite effect of what Nestle want <laughs> you know um a few weeks ago NASA confirms they discovered water on the moon <laughs> <laughs> yes. How, how long do you think it's going to take Nestle to build a rocket? I actually, I saw a meme. I, I've already <laughs> seen one. It's like NASA announces water on the moon, Nestle, and it's like a girl going, what? Yes. <laughs> I can see it happening. <laughs> <laughs> NASA, sponsored by Nestle. Oh, <laughs> it's gross. All right, that was that was me for a while. I um I only wanted to use the opportunity to make that joke about Birmingham and also to tell you that I used to go to Edinburgh. Well done. <laughs> Do you want a minute just to soak in that? No, I'm already drenched. <laughs> I'm dripping. <laughs> I'm dripping. I'm dripping. Um, over to you. Tell me about flavors. Yeah. yeah. Well. Funny enough, you mentioned how Perrier calls itself the uh, champagne of the water world, or that was the kind of brand they were going for. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about sommeliers. So you can have water sommeliers, believe it or not. Um, so like you'd have, you know, somebody that would be in a posh restaurant or hotel um, there to pair your wine with your meal. Uh, you, you can have somebody to pair the water with the meal as well. Um, more often than not, they are already kind of trained wine sommeliers, um, but they've gone and done this extra kind of training in water. And it's quite a, a longer course than you'd imagine. It's a few weeks uh, because it's not just about, you know, sitting and tasting a bunch of water and getting a flavour profile set in your head. They actually have to kind of look at the 
kind of geography of it all. They're educated on the properties of the water, the elements that affect it, how it's affected it. Um, you know, the way that the natural filtration affects the, the flavor profile, because you can have profiles of acidity, minerality, pH, it's all changed by kind of how it's naturally filtered. It could be through, God, volcanic rock, sandstone, lime, limestone, everything you can think of. There's so many different ways that you can create this natural profile. And that's the beauty of the mineral water because it's untouched. There's nothing added or taken away. So you can have very unique flavor profiles. So for example, um, the Fiji water, which is naturally filtered through volcanic rock, has a very, very pure flavor profile. Um, some would say it doesn't taste of anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, whereas if you were to be given a glass of kind of San Pellegrino sparkling water, a lot of people often say that it's quite bitter or salty. So if you were to drink a glass of Fiji water followed instantly by a glass of San sparkling, you would notice that difference. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result of that, they obviously pair water with different meals. Uh, as well as the free flavor profile, they talk about obviously it's still versus start sparkling as well, because that has quite an impact. Uh, and so generally they say that mineral water uh, goes well with um, salads, desserts, and hors d'oeuvres. And sparkling water straight up goes well with oysters, which you'd imagine kind of oysters and champagne, it's Mm -hmm. hand in hand. Um, for seafood or a soup that's got quite a strong flavour profile, they just suggest a regular still water, uh, quite a pure one. So there's no kind of, you just get all of the flavours of the food. Um, and then with regards to sparkling, you can get different intensities of sparkling water. It, you don't see it so much in the UK market. It's just sparkling water. But I know that in Europe, you can buy... Um, I'm trying to think of a name of one. I think there's one called Spa Intense. So you were speaking earlier about how spas are often mm. uh, historically where the water company started. There's actually a place in Belgium called Spa. So they obviously lucked out when they found a good water source there. <laughs> They've already got the brand. <laughs> so in Spa, when they discovered they sourced this, they're, you know, they're the biggest water um, provider in Belgium, France. Like They dominate the market there. And they have quite a different variations on their sparkling water. So they have normal sparkling, but they also have spa intense um, where they just basically put more gas into it. So it's really, really bubbly. It's like, whoa, it's an mm -hmm. explosion in your mouth. I really like it. Is it? <laughs> yes. Um, and so the lighter bubbly version, uh, sommeliers would recommend that with poultry. And mm -hmm. the intense bubbles, they'd recommend that with like red meat. So... Obviously, like you'd pair a steak with red wine because they're quite bold and they hold together quite well. It's the same kind of concept with the really mm -hmm. intense bubbly water. It can stand up against the red meat and that intense flavour. I'm still caught up on the idea that you would get um, a salad because you're going for a light lunch. And mm -hmm. then the smelly is like, well, you should have a mineral water with that because it pairs well. And you go, OK, sure. Yeah, I'll get a mineral water with my salad. And then he tells you, do you know what pairs really well with mineral water? Dessert. <laughs> and that's how you get from salad to dessert in two easy steps. Perfect. It's, it's all marketing, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, as, well, as well as pairing the water with food, um, they think about it as a whole, the food, the wine and the water, because a lot of the times they will pair water with wine as mm -hmm. well. Uh, because a very well-balanced pure water, it can lower the tannins in wine. So if you were to drink the water and then the wine, it would alter the taste of the wine because you'd get more fruity notes and more of those components coming through. So they really think about it. So much so that there's a sommelier um, out in America in Beverly Hills. He's crafted his own spring water. Obviously, spring water can be treated in certain ways to alter the flavor profile of it. So he's crafted this spring water that he he classes as like the perfect pairing water. Now the name, the fact that this is made by a guy 
who is a wine and water sommelier in like a really posh restaurant and obviously knows his stuff and has really high-end clientele. He decided to <laughs> call his water Beverly Hills 90H2O. Wow. <laughs> you know, the thing is, though, for us, that seems trashy as... But I can imagine for the, the the people who would go there, they'd be like, yes, this is us. <laughs> Our brand. <laughs> Bad. But um, he's mm. obviously very proud of it. Mm-hmm. He says it's, uh, it's the perfect pair in spring water. Um, it has the ability to lower the acidity and the spice of certain dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's added a whole bunch of stuff into it, vitamins and minerals, one of which is silica which helps the palate um, with spices and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did read um, a very honest food blogger's kind of opinion of it all. She went to meet him. He went through the whole water wine pairing and everything, and she was very dubious. But she said, I will say that it did help with the spice. That was pretty much the only thing she did say. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, yeah, I kind of noticed. So apparently he brought out this Beverly Hills 902HO was really uh, proud of it and was talking her through it and was giving it the big end, you know, it does this, it does that, it pairs well with food. And she was like, I'm not just taking your word for it, show me. And so he ordered some blue cheese and something really spicy for her to try with it. And she said, yeah, if I'm honest, it didn't really do anything with the blue cheese for me, but it did kind of help to mm-hmm. calm, my, calm my palate down with the spice, but not change it. So yeah, it ruined the food. You could so, have a nice coconut lassie, though, couldn't you? Exactly. Yeah, that's going to do the job. You know, on the, um, <laughs> on the, you know, on the wine and water thing, um, yes. you know, for the ancient Greeks, it, it would have, who famous wine drinkers, gods mm-hmm. of wine, um, it would have been considered quite uncivilized to just drink wine without adding water to it. Yeah. Because, you know, they would drink for hours and hours and hours. So mm-hmm. they would have great big drinking bowls they would put some wine in from the jug and then some wine in from the water and that's how they would always drink it it was kind of uncouth to have either one or the other actually you Mm -hmm. always had it combined well so there you go taking a sip (laughs) (laughs) editorial sip thanks Um, yeah water sommeliers i would like to try it yeah, I would. I was always, un- until I worked in the industry, I was always under the impression that all water tasted the same. Um, but I do, I notice a difference more between kind of tap and bottled water now. Um, I think I've been quite spoilt in that I have just an endless supply of bottled water if mm-hmm. I want it. So it's often in my house and I'll just pick it up and drink that. Um, so whereas now when I do drink tap water, I do notice the difference in flavor not that I dislike it it's just a very different flavor mm-hmm. whereas before I just think oh it's all the same why are people buying bottled water <laughs> uh, speaking of water flavor actually I did look into flavored water in my research yes um god it's one of those things where where to start you could talk about it so much so I just thought I'd look at some of the early kind of instances of people flavoring water and it took me back to the early 1500s, actually. It's quite a long time ago people started flavouring it. And they noticed uh, that the key to making flavoured water was the art of distillation. And the earliest kind of findings I could come up with, it was uh, 1512. And the author, his name is so good. His name is Hieronymus Brunswick. Yes, I love a Hieronymus. That's it's a great name. I can come back. Very, very good name. He had um, a basic but very coherent kind of book with regards to distillation. And he talked about the art of distillation and it was essentially just taking herbs and flowers, heating them in water, vaporizing certain compounds and leaving behind others to produce a concentrate of pigments, flavors and aromatics. Right, so it's very much like making gin or something, really. Yeah, so you're just distilling the Mm -hmm. lovely flavours from the herbs and flora. Yeah. And then it's essentially like squash then, you're just adding it to water. Mm -hmm. So it's because a lot of people think of flavoured water as just, you know, 
as we buy it mass produced in the supermarket now yeah. or it's just like you'd have in a spa where you just have a nice jug of water with mint and whatever put in but these guys are actually going one step into it a bit more with the distillation so he was focusing more on the actual art of distillation it was uh, a while later then that people started like really going into it with recipes and flavors and different drinks um so a guy called Walter Herman Riff in 1556 uh, had a really lovely, essentially like a recipe book for flavoured water. Um, and he used to distill things like peonies, violets, water lilies, citrus, uh, just to create these. And as well as just uh, as just being enjoyable drinks to have, it went also into like the whole medicinal side of things, which we talked about yeah. earlier. And I think the reason that this book is so kind of prolific is because it was really well put together. It was illustrated and it was coloured. It was it's really beautiful. Like for its time, it was something special. And then those recipes um, were kind of carried through the Renaissance, through Europe and kind of stolen and ashamedly mm. and shared, which is quite Things nice. Like getting a Nigella spring collection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Imagine falling on, yeah, Nigella's book back then. We loaded. Um, and then I just wanted to throw it straight back into the modern day then and laugh at Whole Foods. <laughs> because what are they doing? Whole Foods tried to capture that kind of lovely flavour, distillation, herbal, health, kick water stuff. Mm -hmm. And they launched, I think it was around 2015, they launched their asparagus water. Uh, um, you know what I'm thinking of instantly, surely. Oh, are, what you thinking of, are you thinking of we? I am thinking of we, yeah. I'm <laughs> thinking of asparagus. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> instantly, when you said asparagus water, it's like, you mean asparagus we? <laughs> no, it's asparagus water. So they'd obviously like read into all like the health benefits of asparagus, et cetera, et cetera, and decided that there's going to be their new thing now was asparagus water. But they just did not make the effort. They literally took a bottle of water, put three bits of asparagus in the water, capped it, put it on the shelf, $6. Wow. And they got a whole bunch of backlash for it, as you can imagine. Not surprised. It was, yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> like, when I saw it, I was like, is this legit or is this an April Fool? You know, some companies come out with all the April Fool. No, it was yeah. a thing. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to finish off. We were talking earlier about how I famously don't drink a lot of water. Mm -hmm. There is an animal that does not drink much water. I don't know if you are aware of said animal. Um. Well... I mean, famously, like there are animals that can store a lot, but they still need to drink it. Mm -hmm. I know there are certain animals that absorb water through their skin rather than drinking it. So maybe it's mm -hmm. that. Close. So it's an animal that it gets the, and they didn't even actually say moisture when I was researching this. It gets, yeah, sorry, they didn't say water when I was researching it. They referred to it as moisture. Mm -hmm. So this animal gets the moisture it needs through, um, what it eats uh, which is seeds and it's the kangaroo rat so mm. despite the name it's not from australia it's usually found in um like southwest us like california desert yeah um and yeah they can go their entire life without drinking water so the average life is three to five years and they don't I have to actually physically drink water in their I mean, time. You say that, but they've never been on a night out with us. <laughs> <laughs> it would, well, it would they be can, water the next day. They can do as many shots as they want. They just don't drink water. <laughs> but I just, I, I can't believe I'd never heard of that before. The yeah. kangaroo rat never drinks. I mean, I know, I mean, I know that, you know, we can get the water we need through eating because... I've been to a restaurant before that was entirely raw vegan and they were like you don't need water or anything with your meal because there's so much water in the food that yeah. you don't need to have as much. Funny you say that, actually. 
Mm -hmm. funny you say that because I've recently changed my dog's food and um it was Chris my husband noticed that they weren't drinking as much and he was worried that um the reason that Milo wasn't drinking he thought perhaps because with his age and he's got arthritis perhaps he couldn't reach down into his bowl as comfortably as he can to drink Uh into buying one of those like elevated trays for him to have his water (laughs) (laughs) um but no it's a common thing with the water with the dog food that we buy um it's kind of rich in vegetables and water and other stuff that we weren't usually yeah. giving them because we were predominantly feeding them dry food. Um, so yeah, they're getting a lot of water now from yeah. the diets. They're not drinking as much. It's a good way to do it. Mm. Shall I uh, round off with a couple of things? Yeah, hit me. So um, obviously you've spoken about water being essential to life. Did you know that you can become intoxicated by water? I'm willing to try. <laughs> alas we're not talking about drunk um but you can drink too much water that it can make you very ill and be fatal um just what happens when people drink too many bottles of water when they've had some drugs yes exactly mm-hmm. so that's one of the main scenarios you know overexertion, heat stress so yeah essentially what happens if you have um MDMA or ecstasy is always known um you sweat a lot you feel thirsty and then people drink a lot of water to rehydrate but um the problem is it it also MDMA also increases the levels of um, an antidiuretic hormone ADH Mm -hmm. um, which means you lose less water through your urination and so what it does is it leads to this electrolyte imbalance and that's okay. essential water intoxication is it's when you don't have enough electrolytes in, you know, in your blood, essentially outside of your cells. So the yeah. water tries to permeate the cells, mm-hmm. that old sort of osmosis scenario. Yeah. Um, and it's not very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, it leads to, you know, headaches and disorientation um, change in behavior and personality, drowsiness, um, uh, difficulty breathing, muscle weakness, all this sort of stuff. Like it's not good. So yeah, one of the main examples people give is, is when they've taken ecstasy. Um, it happens a lot more often in endurance sports though. So marathon runners, particularly yeah. susceptible to water intoxication because mm-hmm. um, their sodium levels drop. And it even happens like if they're drinking sports drinks. Um, yeah. not just water it's called um, hyponatremia um, when this happens they, there was a, um, a study actually done on the Boston Marathon um, and they found that 13% of people finished the race with hyponatremia whoa yes not at a fatal level obviously otherwise you'd have heard of it but they were overhydrated, and it's um, when uh, medics are at marathons it's the first thing they look for when people collapse yeah um uh that sort of thing so yeah and then also you know if you've got like a low body mass so if infants having too much water um or it could be part of a psychiatric condition or something like that Mm so it ain't fun but it happens your um kidneys can excrete about one liter of fluid um per hour so if you're having more than one liter per hour that's tricky. <laughs> so when you were saying like how much you have one liter per day, and I was like, oh. Um, but yeah, if you if you are kind of regularly necking eight liters of water in a day because you think it will make you extra healthy, it's actually putting quite a lot of stress on your body. So don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are a couple of famous cases of this. Uh, one is that Andy Warhol's family suspects that that's what caused his death. No way. Um, yeah, he went into hospital to have um, his gallbladder removed, which is tricky because well, he'd been putting it off for ages because he was he was really worried about it. The doctors have sort of said it's a standard procedure, but actually, you know, Andy Warhol already had quite a lot of things wrong with him after you know being shot and put back together and all sorts of stuff um so it it may have been you know that that he he died from complications or something that might otherwise have been routine 
But the thing that suggests that this, this might be the case, that he was overhydrated after the operation, is that his death happened a few days afterwards. And when he went in, he was 58 kilograms. And his autopsy said that he was 68 kilograms, hmm. which is quite a lot of weight gain for just being in hospital. So it would yeah. suggest that that was fluid intake. So that, that's what they reckon. Could have been a typo. Yeah. Um, rather uncomfortably for a typo, rather uncomfortably for Perrier, they did a um, uh, a special Andy Warhol inspired bottle oh, in the two thousands. Do your research, jeez. Yeah, nice. I mean, like you know, it was it was a well known case uh, by then. It had been for a good decade, so um, maybe that wasn't the right artist to choose. Perrier. Oh, the poor marketing manager. Yeah, probably you're so one. proud of it. um the other one that's quite well known you may have heard of it was back in 2007 a radio station ran a competition called hold your wee for a wee god yeah and so contestants were asked to drink as much water as they could without urinating um who signs this shit off (laughs) well the djs yeah the djs were told like it's dangerous but they didn't inform the contestants so um poor woman called jennifer strange um drank seth over seven and a half liters of water without weeing which as oh. i've just said is a really bad idea you know almost throughout the whole day let alone all in one go um so she died and um, the radio station was fined like 16 and a half million dollars you shouldn't laugh. I'm not laughing. I'm just. No, but it's just like, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, that's a terrible idea. And also, you know, I suppose a lot of people don't necessarily realize the dangers of doing something like that. But yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to tell you about a really uh, another real troubling um, thing about drinking bottled water is you may expose yourself to dihydrogen monoxide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you I get a lot of people asking this on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's become. I have, a, I have really... a robotic response that I can type out if you want me to. Say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Um, yeah, it's become like a really well-known sort of scientific prank. Um, yeah, because obviously that's just water, and sometimes they call it hydrogen hydroxide or dihydrogen oxide or hydric acid or you know any of those sorts of things um and um it emerged as far as i can tell in 1983 as an april fool's day <laughs> that's what you mentioned mm-hmm. april fools earlier in michigan <laughs> and they said that dihydrogen oxide had been found in the city's water pipes and uh, warned that it was fatal if inhaled and could produce blistering <laughs> vapors <laughs> yep um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's quite, you know, it's quite a ballsy April Fool's, isn't it? But yeah. uh, it pops up a lot thereafter. Usually started by students, but like children, <laughs> to feel stupid people. And I'd say almost entirely in the US. <laughs> All the cases I found. There were a couple in New Zealand for some reason, but um, yeah, almost entirely in the US. So my favourite record of this was in 1997. A 14-year-old student called Nathan Zona um, did, a, did a test on his students. And um, he, he, the warning he put out about this was that dihydrogen monoxide is also known as hydroxyl acid and is the major component of acid rain. It contributes to the greenhouse effect. It may cause severe burns. It contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape. It accelerates corrosion and rusting of many metals. It may cause electrical failures and decreased effectiveness of automobile brakes. And it's been found in excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. Despite the danger, dihydrogen monoxide is often used as an industrial solvent and coolant in nuclear power plants, in the production of styrofoam, as a fire retardant, in many forms of cruel animal research, in the distribution of pesticides, even after washing produce remains contaminated by this chemical and as an additive in certain junk foods and other food products. So he put this to his students, I think it's something like 47 out of 50 of them agreed that DHMO um, should be banned. And he handed in his science project at school, which was called How Gullible Are We? (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. 
exactly that was that was a student from idaho his um uh the journalist uh, james glassman then coined the term zonerism after his surname to refer to the use of a true fact to lead a scientifically and mathematically ignorant public to a false conclusion Action. So I love it. That's that's my favourite water fact that um, <laughs> that I read and have explored. All the cases of MPs and reactionaries calling for the banning of uh, DHMO. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's me. Anything else? No, I like that we've managed to do a whole podcast on water without saying the p word. Piss. Prick. Oh. Plastic. <laughs> I thought I genuinely thought you meant brick then. Like, that's a P word. <laughs> no, I decided early doors we weren't going to cover that. Yeah, no, I do that every day of my life. <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to ensure we don't succumb to water intoxication and go relieve our bladders. Cheers, everybody. need a wee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but you know what? I quite fancy a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>